Welcome to Alchemy Radio, where the only thing we ask of you is that you keep an open mind. Today's guest is Stuart Wilde, who is considered by many the greatest living metaphysician in the world today. In the last 12 years, he's had over 100,000 visions, which have taught him a vast body of information not available elsewhere. Many of the most famous New Age, New Thought writers and teachers have privately studied with him or have been greatly influenced by his work. In 2001, Wilde discovered the morph phenomenon, a process by which physical reality goes transparent and soapy-looking and humans dematerialize. Watching the transcendental nature of morph for eight years, he gradually wrote out in details the topography and exact nature of what is now known as the Aluna, mirror worlds, sometimes referred to as the spirit worlds. Much of that information has since been verified by many others who have greatly added to his initial work. In the 1980s, Wilde correctly described the etheric life field around humans in precise detail. Previously, it was known only in vague terms in discussions about the human aura. Wilde wrote out the first of many precise and verifiable etheric exercises and sensations in his book, The Quickening. Over the last ten years, he has published hundreds of his visions, many of which have now come to pass. He has written 20 books which have sold in the millions, and they have been translated into 15 languages. Stuart, you're very welcome to Alchemy Radio. How are you? I'm very well, thank you very much, and I'm really delighted to be here in Dublin. It's uh, always been one of my favorite cities. Well, delighted to hear it, and uh, very excited to have you on the show, because uh, you're somebody who has just such a wealth of knowledge and information that we're going to talk about in depth. But before we get into, I suppose, the meat, Stuart, tell us a little bit about your background, um, or, or quite a bit about your background, if you like, because there's so much there. How did you get from where you were to where you are now? Well, when I was a young lad at a sort of very austere English public school, a Catholic school, um, I sort of, like most kids, I think, sort of dreamt to become free. And um, I hid in the roof of the gymnasium for three years. And um, I had a group of friends there, and we sort of sold cigarettes and chocolates and whatever the kids wanted that they couldn't get. Because it wasn't a boarding school where you could just walk out into the town. But it was that desire for freedom, and then I began to sort of... I trained as a medium at the College of Psychic Studies, and I read a book that my mother gave me called The Powers That Be, and her her brother or her uncle, I think, was a medium, and so I got involved in, in that spirit mediumship stuff, and then I wrote 20 books, and then I went into the music you know, business, and I wrote uh, six albums and, uh, and an opera, a small opera, an opera effort. And um, I've written a couple of films, and so I've just always been a writer of consciousness, sort of teaching people how to become free. And that's something that's really needed in today's world, because as many of us are aware, and I suppose so many of us are not aware, things are not always as they seem in the, in, in, in the world at the moment. So what was it, what was the spur for you to, I suppose, take a more a more broad outlook on the world around us and the way things actually are. And how did you become conscious of consciousness, if that's not a paradox? Well, I, I meditated a lot, and I started to go into trance every single day, sometimes two or three hours. Not all in one stretch, but like an hour in the morning, an hour in the afternoon, and 20 minutes at night. And I started to see visions. And, and then in 2000, in the year 2000, I, uh, a really strange thing happened. I was in my house in Australia and there was a meditation group there of about 15 people. And they all started to have these colored dots and patterns, geometric patterns on their skin mm-hmm. that just appeared out of nowhere. And then they began to dematerialize and the walls started going soapy looking. You imagine you could even walk through the wall. And I termed that phenomenon the more because it moved everything. I mean, it, it oscillates the sort of, you know, the sofa. You can see the sofa jiggling. Okay. And, um, and it was through that experience of the moor that I then had like 200,000 visions that came from that, that body of information. Okay, so the, the moor phenomenon then is, it reminds me a little bit of um, people who speak about maybe a holographic universe or that kind of thing, whereby we can create our own solid 
environment, our own reality through vibration, that kind of thing. It's almost like a breaking down of the matrix, so to speak. I know people like David Icke speak like uh, speak about that in depth. Is is that the kind of phenomenon that you're talking about? Yes, very much so. I mean, for example, it wasn't long after that that I began to see people completely dematerialize. And the first time I saw it in, in sort of normal, in a normal ambience, I was at a fire um, at a shamanistic ceremony in Brazil. And there was a man there, and he started blicking out, and I was watching him, and he was kneeling in front of me. Then he stood up, and he completely disappeared. But what was fascinating was he had a cigarette in his hand, and as he walked around the fire to the other side of the lawn, I could see the cigarette come up to his mouth and glow and then come down again and then come up to his mouth and glow and go down again. And he wasn't there. But since that, myself and others that are involved in this sort of mystical journey, we've seen the dematerialization of a human a thousand times. I mean, literally, we stopped counting after a thousand times because it was sort of like we just knew they could dematerialize. So the human body is solid and it's it's non-solid. So it has a sort of wavy, you know, a hazy wave state and a solid particle state. Mm-hmm. And what do you think then causes you or allows you to see the morph phenomenon, Stuart? I don't know. It's something that's triggered in the brain. It must be. It's, it's a sort of a, a point of perception. Um, it's certainly difficult to see in bright sunlight. It's much easier to see in, in hazy light of an evening. Mm-hmm. Although on the first day when we saw it in Australia, it was mid-afternoon and the sun was shining through the windows. So you can see it in, in every light. And, um, you know, we're, I think we're perpetually here and not here at the same time. It's just a matter of, like, sometimes the brain clicks. You can see it. And the rest of the time, you know, you're walking along St. Stephen's Green and you can't see it, you know, because you're off going to work, you know. So I think it is a perpetual state of humanity that they're clicking in and out of their solidity. And so essentially we almost have a Schrodinger's cat scenario whereby things are happening in almost parallel universes at the same time and it's up to us then to manifest which universe we're a part of at any given time. That's exactly it. You know, one thing that I discovered in the war and through these 200,000 visions that I've seen, is that there's a parallel universe very close to us. If you stretch your arm out, it starts halfway between your elbow and your wrist. So it's about 18 inches off the end of your nose, and that's where the parallel universe starts. And in that universe are like heavens and hells and limbos and celestial golden landscapes and, and all manner of existence is going on in this mirror world and um, so heaven and hell are not going out of space they're, they're close they're really close i think it's very so, important for people at this point sorry to interject just to be aware of the fact that we're not just in a five sense reality and that's really what we're brought up to believe it's just what we can see and touch and smell etc etc there is far more out there and even science is starting to acknowledge that through quantum physics and quantum theory and we are in an interdimensional world and as more and more people speak about their experiences of accessing these different dimensions i think the uh, it becomes less of a taboo subject and we will be talking a lot about that so i think it's just important to uh, to to let people know about that at this point yes i mean it could be that like every one of our senses has like nine dimensions to it and we only see the one dimension so we have the one dimension of hearing with the one dimension of sight. But mm. beyond that, there are other dimensions of sight that we don't normally access. So I don't know whether we necessarily have more than five senses, but we definitely have heightened senses. And at times, it just clicks in. It just is there, and you can see it. And then eventually, if you're calm and you meditate, and you've got a sort of clean soul, those worlds open up more and more and more. And I've had an extraordinary journey and I've taken a lot of people with me I mean thousands upon tens of thousands and I, th- I think a, a good practical example then Stuart of that is the if you take a cat a cat can see different things because they have um, they have access to a different light spectrum that we do they can see things that we can't see they're not visible to the human naked eye and that's I, I suppose a practical example of exactly what we're speaking about albeit in a more heightened state 
That is exactly it, you know, and of course dogs can't see colour, but they've got this acute sense of hearing and smell. And so they compensate from the fact that they live in a kind of grey colourless world for their heightened perception in, in the other in the other senses. So yes, it's just I think because there's a shift going on, there's a quickening happening now. And people are sort of realizing that like there's a perception beyond the dogma and the normal. That's not to make the religions wrong, but to say that like Hey, beyond that, you can learn to see things, and it's like I write from a metaphysical perspective on my site, mm-hmm. uh, com, and I try to give people the inside story, the story behind the story, like what's happening at an energy level with the New World Order, and you know, Bush and Blair and Iraq and all this stuff. So there's a there's a wideness to it. it it's almost like as you let go and you go wider and wider and wider, you see more. And, of course, there's a lot of dot connecting that goes on with that as well. So you, you've mentioned, I suppose, the geopolitical uh, spectrum <laughs> that we're, uh, we're living in at the moment. Let's talk about that for a second. What's your perspective on the world around us? And you mentioned New World Order, and I suppose it's, it's topical at the moment because the U.S. presidential election has just happened. Um, so let's talk about that for a little while, Stuart. Well, um, I made a YouTube recently that somebody else picked up, and they put pictures of music on it, and it's called... The new world order is dead on arrival. And what I've said is that these old men that invented the new world order, let's say like Bush Senior, and he first mentioned it almost 20 years ago, it's just their sort of flabby dreams of control and power and money and so forth. But I believe that like karmically, they won't be allowed to go there. You know, it's not going to happen. And economic situations and people rising up and attempting to uh, you know, rest back control, political control for themselves will happen a long time before some flabby old kid like Bush becomes sort of the ruler of the world. And so I don't think the New World Order has much chance, but yeah, we are in the age of like, you know, surveillance and violence and state-sponsored violence and so forth. And uh, I mean, people like Obama and so forth, I mean, they're devils, you know, they're devils, John. These are devil beings. Mm-hmm. They're like aliens that have come from another planet. That like, you know, glory and pain and subjugating people and so forth. And their time has to run. They, they have to have their, their, their moment of glory. And uh, eventually they fall because all evil meets a superior force up ahead. So, you know, Hitler met the Russians and his armies were rubbed out. It happens all the time. And the tyrant falls because a bigger tyrant knocks him over. So a superior force in this case now in the world is really this force of people's awareness. It's almost like the light came mm. and now people are aware and now they can see the emperor is a fascist with no clothes and, and that's really what I write about a lot is how evil these people are. They're not normal. Did you know, John, that like Tony Blair was indicted by the International Criminal Court in the Hague of war crimes? Like, I don't know if it was a few weeks ago or a month ago, him and Bush have both been indicted. Their warrants out for their arrest. Um, and Bush was on his way. This is Bush Jr. now. Yeah. Um, Bush was on his way to Switzerland and his lawyers advised him not to go because Switzerland was one of the countries where the writ could be served and he could have been arrested if he'd gone there by accident. So you can see how like justice moves extremely slowly, but it is beginning to move. And these men are like not as free as they were before. Uh, a site called Boston.com uh, reported that Bush has been in hiding for three months. Um, so that tells you how like their world is getting smaller. They're not growing to become rulers of the world, quite the reverse. Their world is getting smaller and smaller and smaller as the forces of righteousness and justice, like the International Criminal Court in the Hague, close in on these people. There's a court case this month um, against Condoleezza Rice and uh, Dick Cheney for rendition and torture. Rendition was the um, system whereby America shipped prisoners to sort of third world countries to be tortured. And um, the International Criminal Court is hearing those cases in the month of November. I'm looking forward to finding out what the outcome is. 
But these people do not have a free reign anymore, you know, the same way as in the Catholic Church. The Pope does not have a free reign, you know, when he protected the pedophiles and stuff. Mm. He's not able to do that. And I have a friend who's an insider who's quite a high lay person in the Catholic Church, an official, you know? Yeah. And he was telling me that the pedophilia in the Catholic Church is getting better and better and better because these priests and these, uh, you know, demonic systems that allow for them um, are now being kind of watched and corralled and, and held down. They're not allowed to go to those types of activities as freely as before. So there's a lot of hope for all of us. And I think there is a lot of hope needed also because on the outside looking in at the moment, if you're to look at the way, particularly the Western world, um, is heading, you look at surveillance society and it's almost like a mixture between George Orwell's 1984 and Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. They're like the blueprints for the world we're living in now. So you've, you've Orwell's, um, surveillance society and then you've Aldous, Aldous Huxley, uh, with, with bread and circuses in essence for the masses to keep people distracted and, when I look around myself in Ireland and beyond, that's exactly what I'm seeing and to an increasing level. But it's also very encouraging then that there are so many people who seem to be waking up or becoming conscious. And when do you think we might reach that tipping point? Because you, 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 you spoke there, Stuart, about a, a karmic reaction and how karma is not going to allow this control system to eventually win and that it is in its death throes. When can we expect the tipping point or the hundredth monkey, so to speak? Well, I think it's going to be an economic thing. You know, when you go down to the bank and it's shut and you can't get your cash out of the ATM, I think that's when the people will go on the street. But from a more metaphysical perspective, it's all to do with heat. Um, I've spent 4,500 hours in trance looking inside those hell worlds and the celestial worlds, but particularly the hell worlds. Mm-hmm. Because I was allowed to go in there and, uh, and fire a, a special digital dot that destroyed some of the demons in there. Um, and the hell worlds are cold. They're not like the Bible that says it's all flames, it's cold. And there are places in the hell world where you see flames, but they're cold flames. They're really strange because the flames are not hot. The hell worlds are cold, and the sort of cold cruelty of the human mind, or the cold cruelty of these psychopaths in power and the sadomasochism of the laws and the terror that they create is a coldness. Now what makes Ireland unique in the world is the warmth of its people. They're very, very warm and they're very friendly and they have a sort of glowing soul automatically. Even if a person doesn't have a great knowledge of these metaphysical things or whatever and the concepts might sound strange to him or her, they still have this glow. And so Ireland, I think, has got the best chance in the world to eventually becoming free. And uh, eventually, when they get out of the Euro and they get out of all this nonsense, they can go back to being um, the people that they were before these strange sort of megalomaniac politicians took power. Yeah, because what you describe there is the traditional outside view of the Irish people and the Irish nation and from the inside then looking out a lot of Irish people have become quite disillusioned with the country as a whole because of political control and because of pandering to economic European concerns and world concerns and a lot of people are choosing to look the other way I think this is in parallel to a lot of other people waking up and that's a source of frustration for many because the traditional Irish warmth or the traditional Irish um, outlook on life for a lot of people, has been dumbed down or dampened somewhat, which is, uh, it's unfortunate, I think. But you think that's going to change? I think it will, because I think the warmth wins in the end. Because warmth is that golden light of God in your heart. And whether it's just like you're having a laugh with your mates in the pub, or you're on your way to work and you're talking to the passenger sitting in the bus with you, it's like, it's always there. Okay, you look at these systems, and you can see how chronic they are. I mean, I was at Gerald Chalente's lecture in Dublin last night, and it was very, very entertaining. I mean, he's a funny guy. Mm. And at the end, there were a few questions, and you could hear people's frustration, and they were talking about fluoride in the water and GM foods. And yeah, and you could see how like people look at this and say, this is a clock. I mean, absolutely, it's a load of rubbish. But these ugly forces have to play themselves out, and eventually, I'm sure Ireland will fight to win its own again. 
the same way as it fought to win its independence from the British. And do you think, Stuart, the best way to fight a control system such as, the, such as this is in a physical way or a metaphysical way or a spiritual way? Well, I think it should be done on all levels. You know, you can develop your power metaphysically by being calm and meditating. And you can evolve spiritually by reading books of myself and other people, Deepak Chopra, say. Mm -hmm. But then also there will be a moment when people do have to turn out, you know, in the streets and protest. And that will, that day will come because I've seen really, really disturbing visions of food shortages and uh, tanks in the streets and so forth. But it's a catharsis, it's a sort of transformation that we have to go through to realize that we don't need these leaders, we only need each other. You know, the love that we have for each other is enough to run the country and get the trains to go on time. We don't need these leaders, we don't need these systems, we don't need these corrupt banks. And you know, It's just an evil. And for the Irish state to have to, like, pay higher taxes to, to pay off the debt of some mafia bank, I mean, that's a nonsense. I'm sure you can see why people are disagreeing. Absolutely, and I think you, you speak about debts there and the economic situation in particular. The farce of it all is, and I think people are certainly waking up to this finally all over the world, is that it's a complete fiction. It's not even real. When we look at the monetary system, it's a pyramid scheme or a Ponzi scheme that has to collapse eventually, whether we like it or whether we're willing to accept it at this point or not. Yes, I mean, it, 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 it's bound to. I mean, the ECB has created 22 trillion euros on the QG, you know, that didn't exactly announce it. But it has been written up now by financial journalists. Well, where did that 22 trillion come from? Nowhere. They just keystroked it into a computer. But that means that all the other euros that are swishing about Europe are worth less now because there's 22 trillion newcomers that yeah. to dilute the, the, um, to dilute the money. And that's really what's happened with Ben Bernanke and the Federal Reserve. I mean, they can print trillions, 10 trillion, 20 trillion, 50 trillion, all in secret. So, they're going to debase the currencies, and that's one of the worries that we have. And so, um, a lot of people look to buy, you know, you know, buying a bit of gold and so forth. And last night's lecture, there was a guy there, uh, Stefan Kramer from Celtic Gold, who mm -hmm. did a half presentation on why buying gold is a sensible thing and silver as well. So these are real currencies that have a global worth, and what we have is what's known as a fiat currency. A currency the fiat currencies that are just churned out the printing presses and then of course now there's computers they don't even need the printing press they can just credit your account with 100 million in a matter of seconds mm. you're spot on with that and it'll be interesting to see how that pans out from an economic point of view but let's speak about your visions for a while Stuart because you've had hundreds of thousands of visions at this point and first off when did you have your first one how did it come about and how did things progress from there because I'm fascinated by this it started off quite slow uh, when I was in my early 30s. And by the time I got to early 40s, it started to move a little bit quicker. But the main vision started in the year 2000. And, um, and they've been going unbelievably fast. They're visions about dimensions, like where the dimensions are. And then a lot of the visions I had have been of the heaven world and the hell world. And in the heavens, there's celestial beings like the Hindu gods and Jesus and Buddha and so forth. And there's massively tall beings in the celestial world that are sort of 60, 80 feet high. And the visions have really been my teacher. They showed me the multi-dimensional universe that we, we, that we exist in. But we call it a hyperverse because it's an inner universe of vast proportions. And so, They've showed you things, and I've learned things about the destiny of the world. Um, for example, I saw the visions of the food riots in Ireland, and the collapse of the Catholic Church, and various, you know, mad bits of madness. But one of the first visions I ever saw was of a being, and she had this really strange sort of digital fractal eye. It was all gold, and it was at the front of her face, but the eye wrapped around through her ear behind her, you know, behind her face, behind the, behind the front of her face. So she had this wraparound golden uh, eye that had circuitry. It was the most extraordinary thing. And the first thing she did was she showed me the destruction of Jerusalem. And I saw this bomb go off and 
Damascus, Jerusalem, India. That was the first major, major, major vision of this era, which has been going now 12 years. And so I've seen these apocalyptic um, visions from time to time. And I don't dwell on them that much, but just understand that all of these systems are eventually going to be destroyed. And in the end, we're left with the sound of water, the sound of water, and our hearts are fetching some on ourselves. So how does one reconnect with that? Because in the modern society that we live in, no matter where we are in the world, there are so many distractions, and this again comes back to Aldous Huxley and his Brave New World, but there's so much going on, and w- whether, it's, whether it's in our own heads or outside external influences, it can be quite difficult for people to reconnect, and I suppose to remember what it is and who we actually are. Yes, I mean, that's the main thing, it's sort of remembering who you are. I mean... Meditation is vital because it teaches you to calm the mind and to control your emotions. So sight of these other worlds uh, happens when like your life force field that we call the etheric goes wider and wider. So the ego and say ambition and hurtling about and stress is vertical. And then when you sit to meditate, you go horizontal and doors open either side of you, left and right. So meditation, and then I talk a lot in my books uh, about processing your own inner darkness, processing the shadow, and owning your your fiddles and your spites and your anger and your emotional upsets, and you just got to own them and understand that they've traumatized people, and you have to belong to to your own shadow, so to speak. Mm-hmm. It's not a mere Cooper, mere Cooper sort of chest beating type of thing. It's more introspection, looking at, wow, I didn't treat my auntie right because I ripped her off my thousand euros, you know? That yeah. kind of stuff. And then, so it's a three-part, it's a three-part process. It's beginning to be more calm, meditating, and also going through this shadow process where you look at, you know, who you actually are. And how do you think people can, on a practical level, Stuart, reconnect with that? Say, for example, somebody who's never meditated in the past before. What would be the first step for somebody who realizes things aren't what we are led to believe and things are a little bit different and they would like to connect on a spiritual level with themselves? Well, walking in nature and being on your own and staying calm is the first practical step. Um, There isn't a magic wand, but it's this introspection, the inner journey where you um, really begin to see that beyond the world of dogma and complications and so forth, there's a a simplicity. So I tell people, hey, try to make your life as simple and as uncluttered as possible. So get rid of obligations. Sell stuff that's surplus that you don't need. Get rid, get rid, get rid. Calm and become like this Zen monk, monk walking on the path. Now, not everybody can walk barefoot with just a stick and a little bundle of food in a, in, a, in a hanky, but it's that idea of, like, there is absolute power in simplicity. And so I tell people, head towards simplicity. It doesn't matter if it takes you five or ten years, but just start. Get rid of these, for example, relationships that don't work, which are, let's say, emotionally violent or disturbing or manipulative and pare down and, and enhance the love and the friendship that does work. So each person has to evaluate their life and think, how does this work on an end level? He's hanging out with his dude who's really angry and he's virtually trying to rip me off. Mm. Is that a sensible way of spending Saturday night? Or do I need to be doing something different? So it's combing through your life and attempting to make it more spiritual and simpler. And let's talk for a second then about certain um, substances that could alter states of consciousness for people. Uh, do you think they're a good thing, a bad thing? or um, I mean, obviously we have synthetic drugs and we also have more natural drugs in inverted commas. We have plants and there, there are a lot of aids for people who are looking to, uh, I suppose, access different points of attention. Um, what's your experience of that down through the years, Stuart? And what are your well, I've been a great uh, promoter of ayahuasca, which is a brew made from a vine that comes from the Amazon, mm-hmm. and from a leaf, and they brew it up. And the essential component of ayahuasca is DMT, which is known as the spirit molecule. It, it, uh, it, it fires the pineal and gives genes and visions and teaches you things. Yeah. And I think I would have sent, well, probably, 
of 5,000 people to the ayahuasca. A lot went to South America and others went to Amsterdam. Um, and I have a friend who has a site called The Hidden Doorway and uh, .com and he's, um, he does ayahuasca ceremonies all over. There's certain countries it's legal, like in Portugal. So. But um, yeah, I'm a great believer of people using ayahuasca. And certainly when the mushrooms were legal, I used to take people on walks to the Irish forest. But um, I mean, really magical, magical experiences, the most magical experiences of my life really. Uh, fairy walks we used to call them, and we'd get a bottle of this mushroom tea, and we'd call it fairy liquid, and <laughs> take it to the forest and uh, with a bottle of whiskey as well. And it was really, really the most fun we've ever had. But uh, yeah, no, I do believe in these uh, processes, and I've been a great believer of ayahuasca. Unfortunately, it's becoming ever more illegal nowadays as the border is controlled by the moving on. Yeah, well, from a personal point of view, I can't understand how something that grows naturally in the ground can be banned or outlawed. It's utterly ridiculous to me and is part of the control system. But uh, unfortunately, that is the way things are going at the moment until the, the spell is broken, so to speak. But um, back to the visions again. In terms of uh, the visions that you've had, are, are they mainly prophecy visions or are they of a random nature? Or do you have any control over what it is when you're in that state? Have you any control over your reality at that time? No, you're like sort of flicking TV channels. It comes to you regardless of, you know, you don't have any volition over it. Yeah, a lot of the visions have been celestial. Like, for example, I've seen lots of visions of Jesus. Um, 400, at least, where he's literally appeared in a room like a yard from me. And then I've seen visions of the Hindu gods, uh, Vishnu, and particularly Hanuman. There's a monkey god, like a fighter. Mm-hmm. In uh, Hinduism, um, Hanuman, I've seen him a lot, and he always appears from the right. And um, then I've seen the Buddha, the Golden Buddha, a few times. I've even seen the Muslim Redeemer once, only just recently. He's called the Mahdi, M-A-P-H-I. So a lot of it is the celestial beings appearing, and of course they appear with a light. But it's more than just a pretty light. It's a lot of mathematical codes that they invest upon you. And um, I've had stigmata for two and a half years and it goes through my feet and my hand it's like much like nails. And it's excruciatingly painful. But the visions accompanied me through it. The visions accompanied me through those stigmata and showed me. And then I got this light in my hands and um, I can see the light with my eyes shut which is extraordinary. That's in a sight, and I can see the light with my eyes open. This is in a darkened bedroom at night, not in one summer. Yeah. And so I then wondered what on earth I was supposed to do with this, but it came out of the bank. And then I saw visions about doing hands-on healings, and so that's what I've been doing, going around Ireland in various places and stopping and doing hands-on healings on people. And take us through that process. Is it something to do with the etheric life field when you're doing hands-on healings? or What is it in relation to for anybody who might have absolutely no experience or knowledge of it? It's a purple light. That's all I can say. And I see these hands come up, like what I call the Jesus hand. Um, They're not necessarily the hands of Jesus, but they look like his hands, you know, when you see them in paintings and stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. And when I put my hands on somebody's shoulders, I see the hands, the double hands come up nine times. And that's like a vision or an inner sight thing. And once they come up nine times, the healing's over. And then after that, I do some shamanistic prayers that I learned um, in Brazil and, and in the Amazon regions. And then that's it, two minutes. But um, I just got a, uh, an email from a solicitor in Galway. Yeah. And he brought his auntie um, to St. Patrick's Well in Clonmel, where I used to do healing. And um, she was dying, but the doctor had like, written her off. And she's completely cancer-pure, 90, cancer-free now, 99%, the doctors say. They cannot find the cancer, but they give themselves that 1% just to cover themselves. So it took four months from when I did the hands-on healing on uh, this list his auntie to now, when she's had the test of hospital. So there's no knowing, John. There's no knowing how, how on earth 
it works. I don't know how it works. It's like this purple light goes into people, it clears away the darkness, and then their body heals the cancer. And that's how it works. And does, it, does it always work, Stuart, or yeah. does it appear to be of a random nature? Well, there is a slight random element in it. And when I started, I was sort of silently saying to the beings around me or whatever, which in fact is at the four walls of my bedroom, I was saying, I don't want to do this work unless I can heal everybody of everything. Hmm. And then I was taken through a whole series of visions of how certain people karmically have to go through the diseases they go through because they created them. Do you follow me? Yep. It's way too complicated. And I don't want to be judgmental and say, well, this person was bitter and nasty and so now they've got leukemia. Okay. But, you know, there is, some people have to have the disease they have, but most people are allowed a second chance. So I haven't got a definitive percentage, but I mean, my inkling would be at 90, 85 to 90 percent of the people can be cured, and 10 to 50 percent of them can't. Now I met a guy in a pub at Lord's in London at a cricket match, and he had leukemia, and I talked to him about the leukemia. and he came to my hotel and I did a session on him. And um, 30 days later, he went to the hospital in Exeter, and they gave him a report that his leukemia was non-detectable. They could not detect the leukemia in his body. It's a gift from God. It's not really... We can't understand how these things work, because they come from a higher place. To come. Mm. And when you say God then, Stuart... I know there'll be a lot of uh, listeners who might not necessarily believe in God or might not be overtly religious. Is God to you then a religious entity or is there a place for organized, structured religion or is it just something spiritual that the you've put the label God upon? Are you talking about maybe a universal energetic power as opposed to a guy in a white beard or have the visions told you something more? It's both those two things, John. You know, there is the structured religion which helps people and gives them a sense of community and cohesiveness. But I don't mean to be disrespectful, but the religions don't know very much. You know, they sort of can't see. Mm-hmm. You see it by the inner world. Um, what we call God is in fact a vast light. And the light is not just a pretty light. It's information. It's data. So I say in my books, um, I wrote a book called Grace Gaia and the End of Day. Yep. In there I explain that, um, that, that, that in the light is information. And so grace and information are the same thing. Ignorance is a lack of grace. So if you want to put it in religious terms, well, there you have it loosely. But essentially, this light is vast and it's, it's full of data. And the data travels, um, I don't know if your listeners would be familiar with like what, you know, like Mandelbrot's fractals, let's say. Mm-hmm. Well, the light has all these fractals and these mathematics in them. I mean, it's extraordinarily beautiful, the codes, the fractal codes. And that is information. So if you open your heart, you'll be given more information. So it's almost like you open your heart to what the Christians would call grace. And how grace appears is through information. And many people have spoken, Stuart, about uh, conscious points of attention, which a lot of what you're describing, uh, to me, it's certainly my reading of what you're describing, is a conscious point of attention. And there are a number of methods, and quite often there are, I suppose, false prophets out there and people who will claim to be able to do certain things, uh, be it healing or be it having, I, I don't know, there, there are a number of, of, well, thousands of books out there, self-help, self-help books, that actually don't really help people at all. They provide maybe a placebo at best for people. So let's talk about the placebo effect for a second because it is an acknowledged scientific thing that uh, people can be cured through the power of their own mind. Do you think that's a chemical or a scientific factor at work or is it actually the spiritual world or somebody opening up to the spiritual world without necessarily realizing it themselves? I think people have the intrinsic power to heal themselves. But, for example, I've been to learn some of the sacred sites, you know, uh, Santiago de la Compostela, mm-hmm. and, uh, various places like that, Chartres and so on. And when you go to Lourdes, the first thing they tell you is there hasn't been a miracle there in 30 years. So right. that's how much placebo effect there is. Okay, yeah. Um, 
And I'm going to go to Lewis and do some readings there um, next year sometime. But yeah, the placebo effect, I think, is definitely possible. But um, I don't know how effective it is. And I think people should rely on their medication and their doctors in case the placebo thing doesn't work for them. So obviously you think there is a place then for uh, for medicine. But that leads us on to natural medicine and natural healing because there's been a backlash, particularly in Ireland and the UK, over the last year to two years that I've noticed against the likes of homeopathy and people saying, and particularly the established medical uh, professionals saying that it's absolute nonsense and it's cod's wallop and it's this, that and the other. But I think a lot of the research and studies that have been done into water memory and homeopathy and energy structures on a quantum level are showing that this is something that physically is possible if we need physical proof, as so many people do, of things. So what's your take on homeopathy and natural remedies versus, I suppose, mainstream medical science and big pharma, which so many of us have so many issues with? I'm very, very keen on um Homeopathy is an information thing, you know, saying grace is information. And by um, totemizing, let's say, a remedy and making it into a homeopathic pill, I'm sure it works. I mean, there's no question of it. But, of course, it is the fascist nature of control to want to sort of regulate. For example, we used to make uh, little bottles of mist, uh, lavender mist, Mm. The water just of St. Patrick's well, and we put lavender in it and a little bit of alcohol to preserve it. And I blessed the bottles and send them out to people, and we called it the Avalon Mist. Well, we were going fine, and we were only selling them at cost for five euros. But suddenly, the post office won't accept water in the mail. They they won't accept liquid in the mail because Tony Blair, some years ago, came up with this sort of mythical exploding liquid idea. And so suddenly our little sort of venture to sort of send this protection spray to people. Yeah, you know, people would spray it on their kiddies' pillows at night if the children were disturbed by nightmares and stuff or if they were disturbed by dark influences. So it's not a, a healing remedy as such, but it sort of is because it made people better. And, I mean, they're going to close down on all this stuff. It's going to have to go underground, and the herbalists are going to have to grow the stuff in their greenhouses and so forth. Like, for example, how they banned um, St. John's wort, which is used for depression. So what I did on my site, um, stillwild.com, was I emailed all the readers, and there's a lot of them, and I said, if anybody would like me to send uh, 50 John Wart seeds free of charge, I'll send them. And in the end, we sent out, I'm not sure, 50,000 seeds, you know, maybe more, 100,000 seeds. Wow. People all over the world for them to plant the John's water in their garden and stuff. It's not good to plant it in fields because it's poisonous to the cattle. But uh, anyway, that was my way of, like, pushing against these John's water regulations. So it's just a, I mean, it's a very little protest. But, hey, we had to buy the 100,000 seeds and pay something to put them into the envelope to, oh, you know, we were posting in Indonesia, China, Australia, all over the world, you know. And a personal protest like that, which became something so much more than personal, I think is the key to breaking a control system, assuming that that's exactly what we want to do. And I know it's certainly what I would like to do and so many listeners would like to do, because I suppose the power that the control system has is only the power that we invest in them. So our silence is consent. And our subconscious consent is what drives them forward all the time and encourages them to, I suppose, increase the uh, the frequency and the tempo of what it is they're trying to do. So, yeah, I think those are good words, frequency and tempo, because essentially it's a it's a fascist it's, it's a fascist thing. It's it's uh, you know it's, it's an evil. I think at the beginning people have to just withdraw and not get emotionally upset and begin to work on themselves, whether they go to Amsterdam and take ayahuasca, or whether they you know, get involved in some kind of healing therapy or I don't know, crystal meditation circle or whatever it is they want to do. Mm. First you pull away, then you get strong, then you attack. That would be my suggestion. And what would you say to people who have experienced huge upheaval in their lives, for people who have decided to go down the path of spirituality or freedom and to go against the grain? Because that's very much what people are doing at this stage. They're going against the established order of things. 
And quite often that can lead, and I know in my own experience, it can lead to quite a lot of friction uh, between yourself and the people around you and even within yourself between what you're, you're brought up to believe in and when you cast that aside, suddenly you can at times feel, well, personally, I could feel that I was floundering or I was alone in the dark, so to speak. What would you say to people who are discouraged by that or who think they mightn't have the fortitude or the strength to pull through it? Are there any kind of little tips or methods for people? Well, I met a teacher in Brazil, and he was a very nice man. And he told me, you have to love your tormentors. He says, the only way you can escape from tormentors is by loving them. And I've known that's always stuck in my mind. I remember him telling me that in a jungle. Uh, in the Atlanta Mutter, which is where the sort of jungle arrives at the sea. And uh, he was walking along and he was saying, love your tormentors. So I think the first thing you have to do is love your tormentors. The second thing you have to do is not give an inch. I mean, I teach people, let's say, on ayahuasca, when they see, let's say, demonic beings, because you see heavens and you see hells in the, in the ayahuasca. It teaches you to become a broader person, yeah. showing your perspective of both sides. And I told them, listen, put your front foot forward, put your hands up to your face like a Zen fighter, and don't give one inch of ground. And then you've got to realize that you're surrounded by dysfunction. So you have to bring people along gently, or you have to just allow them to be angry and to be dysfunctional and keep out of their way. Because one of the great secrets of the spiritual journey is you have to learn not to control. You control yourself and you let the rest of the world do what it wants to do. Good advice indeed, I think. And there's one thing I wanted to bring up with you, Stuart, which is to yeah. do with technology. Um, we've already mentioned, and you've spoken at uh, length, about the senses and the extrasensory perceptions that so many people have that appear to be buried. Do you think that technology is a way of mimicking that as we see advances in technology? For example, mobile phones could be seen as a replacement for um, extrasensory uh, telekinetic ability. Um, and yeah. we, we've all these gadgets and things that do things for us and connect people. Whereas if you look at ancient knowledge and especially Latin American shamanic knowledge, they speak about how all of this is already inherent in us and that we have this ability if we could just discover it again for ourselves and that there is no need for this modern technology. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that's very true. I mean, we do have a very heightened sense of awareness. And, you know, nobody knows where it comes from. I mean, some people say it's a higher self, that there's like a higher spiritual entity inside of us that offers us, you know, ESP and intuition and so forth. I don't know if we can activate it enough to be able to sort of use it instead of a telephone. But, yeah, you can see how the world, as it begins to sort of move information around in vast quantum, is really only mimicking the spiritual world, where grace in this vast quantum of information as well. And then there's the ugly side of technology. It's the sort of, like, I've worked on a couple of brain tumors that I've that I healed, you know, and I've healed various cancers, and it's just general ailments that humans have. Yeah. But the brain tumors, I'm sure, come from mobile phone use, you know, too much of it. And so it's important for people to use the air, you know, the earpiece and hold the, the phone, you know, down in their hand. But, of course, a gentleman should not put a phone in the pocket because it dies there and they're to reproduce and so forth. So it's dangerous. That's the black side, isn't it? The surveillance, the sickness, mm. and so forth. I mean, the internet's fantastic, but like it's given life to the massive pornographic, you know, pedophilia and all that stuff. So there's a dark and a light in technology, isn't it? But then there's a dark and a light in the inner world. There's the whole world on the left and the celestial world on the right. Well, that's it. And it's, it's the, the concept of duality, I suppose, and it is everywhere around us and within us and without us. So what of the concept of as above, so below? Because we hear this so often, and I think it can be quite difficult for a lot of people to describe. And when people hear phrases like that, they think automatically in a lot of cases of Masonic or occult secret society knowledge and that kind of thing. You've done quite a bit of work on what is above us and I suppose the world outside of the earth and the universe or multiverse per se so um how can people begin to forge their own path of knowledge with regard to 
the universe and different dimensions because there will be a lot of people listening who will think, right, the guy's been talking for the last hour and I don't get any of it. I know there's something up with the world and I know there is more out there, but I don't know how to begin my own journey because it just seems too big for me. I think they should sit on their bed at 3.03 a.m. in the morning, which is a very strong time, and they should pray. When I was 20, I was going along um, a road in Putney in London, and there was a little church, and I pulled into this church, and I went into the back of the church, and there was a man playing an organ above me in the choir loft, and he was playing a bark fugue. And I knelt in this church as a 20-year-old scallywag in London, and I said, God, make me truly wise. So I prayed for wisdom. I didn't pray for a girlfriend or a sports car or fame or fortune. I prayed for wisdom. Mm. And so I would say to people, sit in your bed at 3.03 in the morning and say, guide me. And then do the other things that I suggested, like process your shadow, meditate, become calm, become uncluttered, become the warrior sage, the Zen monk that's got a bloody big stick in case anybody does to cause trouble. Yeah. So it's just a matter of not being inert. You know, a lot of people are just so inert and so dumbed down and unable to move, you know. So, hey, tonight go join the Crystal Meditation Group. It really doesn't matter if you don't agree with it entirely, but just to be in the society and in the lingo and the understanding. And then if all else fails, you can read my books because the whole thing is laid out there. But I'm not in the business of pushing books. But, uh, yeah, you can read my books. I wrote a book called The Art of Redemption that lays out all of that hell world stuff and what to do about it and so forth. I mean, there are knowledgeable teachers out there that will show you that no, you know, that no. And it's not necessarily then about casting off all the, well, I was going to use the word shackles, it's the wrong word, but all of the... Um, luxuries that are, that we're used to in modern society. I suppose so many of those can go hand in hand with a spiritually enlightened person. Definitely. I mean, I was talking. I was talking to somebody who knows uh, Gerald Chalente. He was on in Dublin. Yeah. And, and he he writes the Trend Journal. He's a sort of forecaster. And they were saying that Gerald doesn't have a mobile phone and he doesn't have a laptop. And I thought, how interesting that this man that runs this fairly large business doesn't have any of those devices. I do have a laptop, but I got rid of my telephone because it's just such a nightmare. But, yeah, you don't necessarily need the things you think you need. But then again, the luxuries of life are there, and we're there for us to enjoy them. I think it's like if they control you, then you're finished. But if you control them, all well and good. So if you can put your iPhone in a drawer and not take it out for a month, you're in charge. Well, yeah, I've personal experience of that. I was in Thailand um, about a year and a half ago. And I deliberately didn't bring my mobile phone. There was no work involved when I was over there. And for the first two days, I felt completely naked. And following that, I didn't miss it one little bit to the point where I would limit my mobile phone use as much as possible. And you're dead right when you say that we don't necessarily need the things that we say we need. For example, we got on fine before mobile phones. And if they were to disappear in the morning, while there would be an adjustment process, I assume we would get on fine again without them. Well, I do have an old mobile phone that sometimes I take with me, but I take the battery and the SIM card out, so like nobody can track you via the mobile phone. Mm. Not that I've got anything to hide, because, but it's just that feeling of like, oh, Big Brother's watching you. And that particular sort of mobile phone that's in three little bits, I can assemble it if, let's say, I get a flat tire at three o'clock in the morning in the rain, and I need somebody to come and get me. Yeah. So you can use the phone more as like a vital emergency thing rather than day-to-day, you know, texting and phoning and talking and so forth. And so I, I recommend that to people. Say, look, maybe keep your mobile phone, disconnect it all, take the battery out and only assemble it when and if you've got to call something because you're running late to the airport or something. And then the key to it all, I would imagine, is to approach everything with an open mind and to question and to never assume that things are necessarily what we are told by an external third or fourth or fifth party or whatever it might be. The news being a big example of that, everybody will look at it. Well, not everybody, but so many people look at the news and they think, all right, well, that is exactly what's happening in the world and there can be no other perspective. It's about perspective and personal power in that sense. It is. And also I say to people, believe everything. Just believe every last crazy theory you hear. And then evaluate and get rid of the ones that are really loop-proof. 
But by being open and being able to sit at a lecture where somebody's, let's say, saying stuff you don't agree with, mm. there's no point in getting all uptight and twitchy. Hey, hear the man out or hear the lady out. Let's find out what she has to say. And then you can evaluate it and reject it later. So one factor of openness is to sort of be open to everything, believe in everything, and then decide what you feel is safe or that warrants your attention or your investment. If it involves, I don't know, buying a book or getting a CD or whatever, you know? Yeah. And you're in Ireland at the moment, Stuart. Um, you're embarking yeah. on a, a tour of sorts. Uh, tell us about that. Well, it's a very low-key tour. Um, I started off at St. Patrick's Well at Clonmel, uh, doing these hands-on healings. And um, I just posted a, 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 a healing on my site, a, a solicitor from Galway for his auntie, and she was dying of cancer. The doctors had written her off. And um, she's been cured. She's, the doctors can't find her cancer. 99.9% clear, they say. So it's like offering people a second chance, and I've done, I've done St. Patrick's Well and Cork and Kinsale Head, and uh, this weekend I was in Kenmare and Dingle, and um, I'll be at Athlone and Donegal Town and Cavan and Waterford and Wicklow, and I'm going to finish um, in Dublin, sort of sometime before Christmas, and then I'm going to leave it for a year or so, and then I'll come back to Ireland. And how can people find out? Is it on your website, StuartWalk.com? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I've got a, I've got a, a seminar in Amsterdam on the 8th of December and the 16th of December. And so that involves lectures and stuff like that. But when they're all over, um, then I do the healings at night. And there's other healers that come there with me. Um, and um, so that's December the 8th and December the 16th in Amsterdam. Um, but the other healings I do, yeah, you just go to stuartwild.com and you click healings. And the healings have got one unique feature, which I want to mention before we come off the topic. Um, all the healings are free, and I do not accept donations. Absolutely not. What shouldn't? You can't give me six eggs or a bottle of wine. I do not accept it. So that keeps it very clean, and people are not sitting there thinking, how much am I going to give this place? You know? The answer is you've got to give it nothing and you won't accept the donation from the rival. So that allows it to be very sort of soft and sweet. Well, that's a, a unique and admirable approach to the whole thing, I must say. Well, I've done two, three thousand four hundred and something healings in the last couple of months. So, um, I've done a lot of them. It's not like as if I'm doing like one or two or three. I did seven hundred. At a seminar in Las Vegas recently, you know, over one weekend. So, there you go. Yeah, it's a new way of operating. You don't ask people for anything, you know, and, uh, don't take any big problem. Because people are always being bludgeoned into something, aren't they? You know, it's not, it's yeah. not the tax man, it's the speeding ticket, or it's the, you know, it's like there's always stuff coming through your letterbox that's trying to milk you, and here's a place where you can go and, uh, you know, receive a purple light, a special healing, and there's absolutely no charge involved. And I don't accept Fantastic. Well, of course, people can check out Stuart Wilde. That's S-T-U-A-R-T-W-I-L-D-E dot com for all the information. And, of course, for your books as well, of which there are 20, and I would highly recommend people uh, dig into those and get cracking on them. Stuart, it's been absolutely fascinating speaking with you for the first time on Alchemy Radio. No doubt we shall again in the future. Um, in, enjoy your tour of Ireland. And have you any kind of message for all the new spiritual warriors who are about to embark on their journeys? Believe in yourself, but put your left foot forward and don't give one inch of ground. I have the power, you have the power, we have the power. Stuart Wilde, it's been fantastic speaking with you today on Alchemy Radio. Thank you for joining me. Thank you very much, John. It's been a pleasure. Alchemy Radio. Thing I think I love you.